Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today on the program, we welcome back Governor Daniel Malloy to take some of your questions at 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. There's a lot to talk about surrounding the state budget that we'll get to in just a few moments. But we're going to start by bringing in uh, both the governor and also Mike Lawler, the undersecretary for criminal justice policy, to talk a bit about the Second Chance Society legislation and initiatives that the governor has put into place. First of all, Governor Malloy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. It's great to be back. And also with us, again, Mike Lawler, undersecretary for criminal justice policy. Welcome back to the program, Mike. Morning, John. Thanks. First of all, uh, Governor Malloy, we saw in Washington that the the top Senate Senate Republicans and Democrats have reached some deals on criminal justice reform. Uh, It has to do with uh, ending some of the automatic punishments and three strikes rules. It seems as though the the pathway that you're on around uh, criminal justice reform is actually a pathway that, that Washington is on as well in a bipartisan way. Before we get into some specifics, can you just talk about this overall mood in the nation where it seems that Republicans and Democrats are getting together to try to change the way we actually uh, work criminal justice reform? Well, I, I think there's a recognition uh, now uh, growing uh, in America that, that sending people to prison uh, particularly people who have committed nonviolent offenses or very low, uh, uh, you know, like uh, D felonies and, 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 the, and the like. Sending them to prison is the rough equivalent of, of giving them an advanced degree on how to be a criminal. Um, and the longer you keep them there, the higher the degree goes. And, and so I think there's a, a, a desire to match services with people who are obviously troubled, um, uh, for one reason or another, frequently because of mental illness or drug addiction, um, match services as opposed to putting someone in, in jail where, quite frankly, things tend to sp- spiral out of control, not, not, not get more control. That, that's number one. Number two, if we're going to spend $120 a night on somebody, uh, which is what prison costs us in Connecticut, wouldn't it be better to, send, to spend that money on additional services? And so we're trying to redirect uh, money uh, in, in that direction as well. And then I think there's this whole um, uh, other thing that we're talking about in Connecticut, Connecticut but sh- they're not talking about in Washington. And, and that is that once somebody goes to jail, uh, in many ways they become unemployable. Um, and uh, that means that not only do we support them $120 a night uh, you know, to pay for their room and board, um, but we may very well be supporting them for the rest of their lives in some fashion or another uh, because getting a, a job coming out of jail is, is pretty darn hard. Getting a student loan is, uh, can be impossible. Getting uh, decent housing uh, might very well be impossible. That's a lot of people uh, living in a relatively small piece of geography, Connecticut, the third smallest state uh, uh, ge- geographically, uh, that, that can't get the kinds of services they need and can't get the opportunities they need to turn their lives around. Mm. So, so, Michael, I'll give us some specifics. When, when we've been talking about the Second Chance Society legislation that passed, where are we uh, in the state of Connecticut Certainly in regards to other states that we, that we may talk about, how are we leading the way? What are some of the changes that have already been implemented here in the state? 
Well, uh, you mentioned the federal proposal that was just announced the other day. Uh, a key part of that is something that we started doing under Governor Malloy four years ago, which are the risk reduction earned credits for uh, prisoners. You know, the feds already gave 15 percent off no matter what. Now, in addition to that, they're going to gear the additional credits to stuff that you actually do while you're locked up. So that's something that, that's been very successful here in Connecticut. It's part of the federal bipartisan bill. Uh, the governor's key proposals last year were, uh, you know, reduce the penalty for simple possession of drugs to a misdemeanor. That's a big change, and it just took effect last Thursday. Uh, establish an expedited uh, parole mechanism so that people who are nonviolent, no victim offenders can get a hearing exactly when they should have a hearing. It used to be delayed for a variety of reasons, so we've added some uh, more members to the parole board. And then finally, expedited pardons for people who have committed crimes where there's no victim, nonviolent, a uh, number of years have gone by since they finished their punishment and they've done everything right, allow them to have this taken off of their record so that they can really become employable in the future. We all know how difficult it is to not just find a job, but to find housing uh, if you have a, a felony record. And, and those are things that are going to change in a big way. Are, are we already starting to see some tangible results out of some of these changes, do you, do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, crime is down significantly. The governor was just announcing last week that the FBI pointed out we were the biggest drop in violent crime in the country uh, two years in a row. I mean, there was a couple of states ahead of us, but, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire, very small states. But, I mean, these are huge changes over time that are kicking in, especially in violent crime. There's a lot less crime, a lot less recidivism, a lot fewer people getting arrested, a lot fewer people going into prison, especially among the youngest offenders. And, Governor, I think that that's an important point is we're seeing the crime rates drop, specifically the violent crime rates. In many ways, if you look at it through the lens of 20 or 30 years ago, we might think of this as counterintuitive, right? We're we're trying to keep people out of prison, and yet we're seeing uh, a reduction in crime. It, it looks like a lot of what you're trying to do and what some other states are trying to do is really working right now. Well, I, I think it's true, and I, I think, you know, it's, some of this is common sense. I, I think if you talk to people who have kids, have raised kids, they, they all wish they could lock them away when they turn about 16 and pick them up when they're about 23. <laughs> and, and so if we put extra effort into making sure that mistakes made by that age group um, uh, don't lead to a permanent uh, uh, scar on their record, um, we should not be surprised that those people turn themselves around. They get, you know, the, uh, they get their head together and, and they live good lives. And, and so putting more work into services and trying to resolve issues that may be causing confrontation in a young person's life when they're 17 or 18 or 19, um, we shouldn't be surprised that once we get them through that, they actually have a fairly normal life. Uh, we're talking with Governor Dan Malloy and also Mike Lawler, his Undersecretary for Criminal Justice Policy on the program. We're going to take your questions for Dan Malloy in just a moment at 860-275-7266. We'll be talking about some other issues later, but we wanted to talk a bit about some of the Second Chance Society uh, legislation and initiatives that the governor and Mike Lawler have put into place. I guess I'm wondering, Mike Lawler, if we can talk a little bit about how this draw in crime and how this new effort to try to keep people out of this prison pipeline that we've had for so long, how this kind of lines up with or maybe rubs up against some of the issues that we've seen in Connecticut cities over the course of this last summer. Hartford, right here where we're sitting, has had an unusually high spike in uh, in murders and homicides, gun-related incidents over the course of the summer. I guess I'm wondering how you feel some of the things you're working on right now might address or help to address some of the issues that we're seeing in a city like Hartford. 
Well, Hartford really stands alone in this spike that you've just described. And it's just in, in the context of shootings and homicides. Other violent crime in Hartford actually is down this year compared to last year. Uh, New Haven and Bridgeport are actually down where they were the last couple of years, which is at historically low numbers. Uh, the governor convened all of the key people from Hartford, from the feds, the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, et cetera, and all of our state agencies at a meeting uh, just a little over a month ago at the Emergency Operations Center, and people came up with a strategy. They've, uh, you know, we've sent them a lot of additional resources from the state into Hartford. The feds have done the same. And in the last uh, two or three or four weeks, you've seen a noticeable change. But if you took... The Hartford's up 16 murders above where they were last year. If you uh, took those 16 out of the equation, we'd be down 20 percent statewide in Connecticut. New Haven and Bridgeport are doing extraordinary things down there with historically low uh, numbers of shootings and murders. You know, you were mentioning the age of some of the people that, that need to be targeted, Governor, this younger age range. One of the unusual things we've seen here in Hartford is actually a lot of the crimes being committed by people in a slightly older age cohort. Not too many years ago, we saw a lot of young people with guns doing crime on the streets of Hartford. Now that seems to be changing somewhat. I don't know how closely you're looking at that, but that seems to be one of the different patterns that we've seen in the city that uh, that I know city residents are looking for some help on. Yeah, we're, we're mapping that. Um, frequently in those uh, cases, there was a gang-related uh, uh, there was a relationship, uh, and certainly um, a lot of these incidences uh, of shootings has, have occurred around drug transactions. Um, so, uh, you know, turf wars are tough, um, and uh, and reprisals are big. Um, and I think that that I think you know, quite frankly, some mistakes were made in, in in Hartford that needed to be resolved. We we stepped in, tried to help them get those resolved. I think they're making progress. Uh, um, hopefully, they'll have a year next year more in line with what uh, New Haven and Bridgeport are doing than than what Hartford has done over the last year. But I think again, you, you know, our. our our violent crime in Connecticut, even with relatively poor cities, is about half the national average. Uh, and violent crime in Connecticut was stuck at, at a plateau for a long period of time until relatively recently where we're seeing these dramatic declines in violent crime as well as other crime. Um, and so, you know, we're actually moving this this thing pretty significantly. You're going to have an outlier. Um, you know, things will happen. Um, uh, as the uh, as the, gov- the former governor of uh, Florida has said. But, but the reality <laughs> Uh, of the circumstances is that we can do better. We are doing better. We are lowering crime. We've seen back-to-back uh, a very significant uh, uh, drop in numbers. This, the statistic that was talked about a little while ago, um, you know, if you took all of the states with a population of 1.8 million dollars, uh, 1.8 million people or more, we, we had the largest drop in crime. So small states did a little bit better, um, but but we're a mid-sized state population-wise, and we had the best numbers. We're, we're uh, talking today about the criminal justice reform in the program with uh, Governor Dan Malloy and, and Mike Lawler. We got a question here from Jay, who says, "How did the Raise the Age initiative affect the crime rate?" I'm wondering if either one of you want to tackle that. Well, I mean, you know, I inherited when I became became governor, we had to implement the uh, raise the age. Uh, and there was a lot of pressure uh, on my administration uh, by municipal governments, police departments, the court, some of some people in the court system uh, to roll that back and not uh, institute it. Uh, I'm very happy we did. Uh, what we're seeing is fewer and fewer young people in prison. 
fewer and fewer people actually coming to us uh, uh, for uh, uh, services necessary uh, to, to keep them out of jail if, they, if, they've, crea- if they've created a disturbance or, or committed a crime. In fact, I think it's so strong uh, what we're doing in that regard that we really should be looking at extending that potentially to, to uh, uh, modeling different behaviors or different treatments for 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and 20-year-olds because the dramatic drop in crime and incarceration in that group um, is really paying very big dividends to the state. Uh, Mike Lawler? So the raise the age thing is sort of a technical thing. It changes the age of jurisdiction in the juvenile courts from 16 to 18. But beyond that, so many changes have taken place. Going right back to even elementary and junior high schools, there's a strong correlation between suspending and expelling children from school and the odds that they end up in prison down the road. This is what people call the school-to-prison pipeline. You've seen big changes in Connecticut in, in, in that category, not in, every state, not in every city equally. You know, New Haven, I think, has led the charge there, and that's why you see a lot fewer kids getting suspended in New Haven, a lot fewer kids getting arrested in New Haven, a lot fewer kids, and I mean like under 25, ending up in prison from New Haven, and you see the crime rate dropping. So the, the number of people being arrested in Hartford, for example, is about double the number in Bridgeport and New Haven. And, and those cities are, are essentially the same size. So how you deal with younger people who are acting out uh, it has a big impact on whether or not they end up in prison down the road. And, and part of our Second Chance Society program actually funds the extension of those programs to, to additional schools and school systems. So we, we are fully invested in this. We believe it, it works. Uh, I was at the uh, national NAACP meeting um, uh, at the president's invitation um, earlier this year. And, and one of the things, uh, one of the, the big talking points was this school to uh, uh, prison population. Listen, kids act out. I mean, kids are going to have fights. Uh, they're going to create a disturbance. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things happening in young people's lives in, in high school. Uh, but we know that if you, if you take a student out or put them in an alternative program that they don't want to be in or leave them at home for five days uh, by themselves, the chances of uh, reoccurring behavior and and more serious behavior goes up very significantly. Let's keep them out. Let's keep them in school. Let's keep them behind a desk. Let's get them the services they need. Let's not give them advanced degrees in criminology. Uh, A last thing for you, uh, Mike Lawler, just before we need to let you go. What is next in the Second Chance Society initiative? There was some legislation passed during this last uh, session, and I assume that there's probably more to come in the upcoming uh, legislative sessions. What do you see as the next step in all this? Well, the guy who gets to decide that is sitting right here, but uh, he's been very clear with us. Uh, that there is more to come, there must be more to come, Uh, focusing on younger offenders, as he just said, focusing on the issue of bail and who's being held pretrial on these very low bail amounts. And and generally speaking, and and it shouldn't go without saying, that the the issue of race in the context of the criminal justice system is a huge thing. And, you know, racial disparities, especially in the suspensions and expulsions from school, you know, these these are hard things to tackle. And we've done a lot of changes recently, racial profiling, statistics gathering, you know, we're going to have a report shortly on how many times tasers are used and against whom. These kinds of things help inform the policy decisions the legislature needs to make. So there's a lot more to come. You want to flesh that out a little bit with some details? Yeah, well, yeah. In the in the coming months, I, I have a. Uh, uh, I'm driving this discussion in my administration. Uh, uh, you know, when I uh, when I got reelected and I announced to my staff that we were going to do two things this year, we were going to get transportation done and we were going to get uh, second chance society done. Um, everybody in the room, including uh, Mr. Lawler's face, was in a state of shock that 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 I would try to do both of those things. And and yet here we are a few months later, uh, having accomplished it. 
that even during the session, as late as 30 days before the session ended, no one thought we would get second chance society. We ended up getting it on a bipartisan basis. Um, I think it was a lot of uh, discussion, a lot of soul searching, a lot of uh, making folks uh, look at the statistics and understanding the significance of them. And yeah, I think that 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 uh, each and every year we should build on the best practices that we can garner from around the, the nation and around the world. And uh, I suspect we'll be taking additional steps. Governor Dan Malloy is on our program today. You can join us with the call at 860-275-7266. I want to thank Mike Lawler, the Undersecretary for Criminal Justice Policy, for stopping by and spending some time with us. Mike, it's always good to see you. Thank you, John. When we come back, we're going to be talking a bit about the state budget. We'll be getting to some other issues, issues that you raise. You can also tweet us at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today, we're visiting with Governor Dan Malloy. We'll take some of your questions in a moment at 860-275-7266, talking about a wide variety of issues facing the state. We've been talking about criminal justice reform off the top of the program. I want to turn to the state budget. And, Governor, just recently, your administration announced a series of rescissions, about $100 million in cuts. It's a, it's a small amount of money when it comes to the entire state budget, but an awful lot of people who are in support of state hospitals and some social service programs are are concerned. We'll talk about some of those concerns in a moment. But first, I guess I'll ask you so so quickly into a new fiscal year. Why these rescissions? Uh, It's the economy, uh, uh, particularly Wall Street. About three point seven billion dollars of our income is uh, our state income uh, is tied very closely to uh, uh, the financial markets, um, and you, the, the markets are down very substantially. Um, so we run the numbers and to similar years of that kind of drop. Uh, volatility is very high, um, and uh, we're not going to lose $3.7 billion in, in funding, but some number of uh, uh, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars are, are actually going to be lost because of the downturn uh, on Wall Street. So I think we're taking uh, appropriate early steps to protect the, the state's uh, financial condition, um, and, and that's what we're te- attempting to do. And I, I don't think you have to be a genius to, to recognize it. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who want to deny it, uh, that, that that's uh, uh, that these cuts are necessary, but but the reality is is we're making the best judgment uh, looking at the st- these statistics, and so when the market's down a thousand points, um, it has an impact on your income. A-, a worry might be that this could be the first of several cuts like this, as we see the economy, maybe Wall Street, not rebound the way we'd like. Is that a, is that a concern? Is that a worry? I, I, I mean, sure, I I don't have a, a crystal ball as to what Wall Street's going to do, and and uh, it looks like. They'll have a good day today, and they had a good day uh, last Friday after a 200-point drop at the opening. Uh, but you know, if you look at uh, where we are in the calendar year, uh, a recovery in that marketplace between now and the end of December, such that people would be selling and, and recognizing gains, is highly unlikely. So uh, there's probably a bigger downside than there is an upside. Uh, but we're going to watch that and, and model it to the best of our, our ability. It, it's interesting. Last year, I was criticized for not making cuts early enough. This year, I'm getting criticized for making uh, cuts too early. And quite frankly, I think the conditions that are presenting themselves this year are more serious than they were last year. Well, well, I guess 
one of the criticisms that you have been getting, and this is from both sides of the aisle, frankly, has a little bit to do with not just the timing of the cuts, but but the manner in which they're being cut in this in this way that you have every ability to do in rescissions. Have you given some thought to calling back uh, the legislature to a special session to allow them to address some of these budgetary issues in maybe a more holistic way? You know, I have uh, repeat. Well, uh, what I have said is uh, I'll have serious discussions with people who have serious ideas uh, any day of the week. I, I like discussing um, those serious ideas. I urge uh, uh, people to put those ideas on paper or make uh, public announcements. You know, uh, on the other hand, if, the, if it's about politics, then, then you know, I, we got a lot of work to do here, and and let let's not eat let's not eat up you know a lot of time in politics if we're just trying to grandstand. But if there are serious ideas, I'm always open. One of the ideas, of course, that that we're hearing even from Democrats is that the state hospitals uh, took a, a big hit here, and there is some worry about the impact on hospitals. Certainly, some of the Democratic side have said they worry about even though there's small overall cuts, there's still s- substantive multi-million dollar cuts to some of the the social service programs in the state. I guess I'm wondering how how to address some of the people in your own party who are saying that these cuts too directly impact you know, patients in Connecticut, people who are some of the, the least advantaged in our state. Well, I, I think let, let's let, let, you know, let, if we talk about the hospitals, let's remember there's 29 hospitals. All but three of them made money last year. Collectively, they made $916 million. Let's just remember that. Um, so when it comes to social services, where we have been much lighter, where we've been much lighter in, in those touches or in those, those reductions, uh, taking into consideration how much money we actually think uh, will, in fact, be spent in those, those areas um, and how much money can be set, spent. And we've asked our commissioners who provide those services or oversee the provision of those services to do everything in their power uh, to make sure uh, that they're bringing those budgets in, in alignment with, with expectations while providing the highest level of services possible. Nobody likes to make cuts. Uh, I, I think that's been a, an issue in Connecticut for a long period of time. I, I think it was very interestingly demonstrated by the Republicans last April 27th when they took my budget, basically put every cut that I made in the budget back into the budget and said, oh, by the way, the governor should find $600 million in savings somewhere. Um, you know, that was the rough equivalent of setting the, the House on fire because the Democrats said, well, if the Republicans say we should put every cut back in, well, then I guess we should do it. But both sides say that we need to uh, 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 exercise some control. Uh, I'm trying to bring that to the discussion, uh, that we uh, should do our best not to, to uh, uh, overspend. I'm trying to have that discussion and make the appropriate uh, uh, adjustments, and that's what they are at this point. Um, but but back to the hospitals, let, let, let's not forget that cumulatively uh, $916 million in profits. And you've talked about the CEO pay. This is certainly something we've addressed on our program here quite a bit, that, that the people who run the state's not-for-profit hospitals make an awful lot of money. Do they make too much money? The, the, the top executives. I think that that's a, a, an individual judgment that, that citizenry or the boards can make. I mean, I think, you know, making $3 million uh, for in a quote-unquote not-for-profit's a lot of money. Uh, but if that's, uh, you know, do I think it's a lot? Yeah, I think it's a lot. Uh, We've had a lot of talk, actually, about hospitals and uh, for-profit companies coming in and running our state hospitals. I mean, are they essentially for-profits at this point? I mean, should we really seriously think, if we talk holistically about changing anything, whether it's Second Chance Society or the, the way we do transportation in the state, should we really think about the way hospitals are run in a, in a bigger way? I, I think that that is uh, what's evolving in the United States in the discussion. Not, not that we're going to treat them uh, all as for-profits, uh, but the more they make themselves like a for-profit operation, then they should expect to further scrutiny. I think that, that that's a reality. Um, uh, you know, we went from uh, funding hospitals 
totals uh, about $750 million to $1.7 million uh, in about eight-year period of time. Um, in essence, squeezing out a lot of support for those other services, you know, the aid to the retarded, the, the folks who own uh, homes for those with uh, cognitive uh, disabilities. Um, uh, they were all living out about 1% a year. Uh, hospitals came in and ate about a billion dollars more in the budget. And what I've simply said is, listen, this model doesn't work. We can't do that year after year after year. Uh, and by the way, we didn't set, change the Medicaid reimbursement rate. What we're talking about is a supplemental payment on top of what we pay for the actual care to organizations that had $916 million in, say, uh, in, in profit. Um, now, they don't call it profit because they're not for profit. So I, maybe, maybe we can we, – that, that's how much more money they had in the account uh, uh, as opposed to a deficit of, of $916 million. Yeah. I, but before we have to take our break, I just want to ask one other thing. One of the top Democrats at, at the legislature, as a matter of fact, the top Democrat of the Appropriations Committee, Beth Bayh, has said maybe it's time to start talking about state worker concessions again. I mean, whenever Republicans stand up and say, you know, maybe you need to find $600 million more million, that's really what they're talking about, right? They're talking about going back to state workers. Well, now you're hearing from some Democrats saying maybe it's time to talk to, talk to state workers. What do, you, what do you think? Listen, we are talking to state workers. Every contract but the state police is up. We are talking. Uh, we're, we're starting those. Uh, but, but let me just remind you that in the, the uh, uh, fiscal 16 budget, um, out of the executive branch, uh, the total cut was $58.2 million. That was about $10 million in uh, lapses. That is saying, hey, find savings somewhere. That's, you know, lapse, mm-hmm. find savings. Then there was uh, a hiring reduction of uh, almost $31 million. Uh, there was a general employee lapse on top of the 10 of another $7 million. Uh, and an overtime savings lapse of $10.5 million. So you're talking about the executive branch. This is a budget you control. Yes. Okay. Right. Which was cut because, listen, the, the legislature wanted to spend more money in other places than, than, than that I did. Um, we came to the table. Uh, we agreed to, to those cuts. But let me put this in perspective. That's the elimination of about 700 jobs in, in, in state government. We lapse about I – mean, excuse me. We see a retirement and changeover of about 1,000 thousand jobs. So we're, we're pretty much in a freeze. Now, that does, we'll, we'll probably fill about 250 of those positions because simply we have to. Um, uh, but we're already doing the things that they say we should be doing. Um, and, and quite frankly, I would say that we're doing them more broadly than, than some other parts of the state government. Uh, in terms of what those negotiations with state workers look like, yes, you're, you're in negotiations. I mean, what do you hope to, to gain from that? Is there a number in your mind that you have to get to when you, when you ask Ask for some sort of concessions from state workers. Um, well, w- what I'm saying is that that every contract is up with the state police. Uh, we certainly, uh, I think, everybody understands that that uh, America, the United States, is in a slow growth mode and has been uh, for many years, and, and is likely to continue in that in that regard. So, those things that we may have become accustomed to in the past, or that other administrations became accustomed to in the past, uh, are, are obviously obviously up for examination and discussion. I, I'm not going to negotiate. First of all, I don't negotiate directly, perhaps until very late in the game. Um, we do have some some folks uh, who are charged with that. We're not going to do it, over, oh, and I, I mean this very respectfully. But but you can't negotiate contracts on on radio stations or uh, in a newspaper. Uh, but suffice it to say that the suggestions that the legislature wants to make, uh, we're all ears. 
Uh, Governor Malloy joins us today on the program here on WNPR's Where We Live. We're going to take just a break because, Governor, you're not the only one that needs to balance your budget. We need to balance our budget here at WNPR as well, so I'm going to turn it over to some colleagues who will tell you how you can help us do just that right now, Where We Live. (laughs) Thank you, Governor. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, a New York Times op-ed over the summer drew attention to Yale University's endowment and how the money spent. The report found more was spent on private equity fund managers than on students. This has prompted renewed debate and criticism over big endowments at big universities. That's our conversation tomorrow, Where We Live. Today, we're joined by Governor Dan Malloy, who's back with us in studio. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Got another segment to take some of your questions here. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We were talking about the state budget earlier, Governor. At least one uh, Democrat who wants to make sure that social services aren't cut said, you know, maybe the the new transportation plans that you have um, that you want to fund, maybe that's a place where you need to do some cutting. I know that you want to invest heavily in transportation. I guess I'm wondering if you can address that issue um, of making sure that your transportation initiatives are funded uh, moving forward as we have to make other cuts to other parts of the budget. There is money to cut in the budget. Let, let, let's be honest. Um, uh, I wanted the legislature to cut more money. They wouldn't. Um, uh, there is money to be cut. Um, and, and for every cut you make, there's going to be people who complain. Um, but the world won't come to an end. Uh, we, could, we could do this. Uh, we can get this job done. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think there, there need to be sacred cows. But, but if, there are, if, if they're not, not going to be any sacred cows, that means no one can have sacred cows. So let, let's come, to, you know, let, let, let's have those discussions. Uh, my administration has attempted to have the, those discussions uh, really in essence with, with the whole body uh, of the legislature, Republicans, Republicans and Democrats. But when the Republicans say put every cut back in and just find $600 million in savings somewhere, uh, they're just moving sand around the top of the table and expect me to, to, to resolve it. Um, uh, a couple of other, uh, uh, other things that I think are important to remember about Connecticut's economy. The reason uh, we've had slower growth in some other states is we didn't make the investments that other states were making during the time that we should have been making them. You know, we have arguably the worst transportation problem um, uh, of, of any state, certainly any state in the region. Uh, uh, the catenary, that is the electric, uh, electric system for Metro North to the uh, Connecticut border, uh, that, that system was replaced by 1995. When I got elected uh, governor, um, uh, that, that project would not have been completed until 2022. Uh, I think we've cut uh, four years off of, of that timeline. Largely, that project was spread out that long a period of time so that uh, we had enough, uh, uh, enough federal dollars coming to, to, to pay for it. We've had these mega projects like the catenary replacement, uh, like uh, uh, all of the work that was done in, in uh, New Haven. A uh, 17, 18-year project probably could have been done in nine years, spread out over that long period period of time because no one would have an honest discussion about how are we going to pay for the infrastructure necessary for Connecticut to, to, to grow jobs. Uh, I decided when I got reelected I was going to take this issue on because it, it has festered. But the cost of congestion, I'm not talking about accidents. I'm yeah. not talking about a tree falling on the highway. The cost of congestion is $4.2 billion 
uh, a year in lost productivity. A hundred a uh, hundred million dollars a day is what Connecticut citizenry uh, is being asked to throw away because we didn't make the proper investments for forty years. I'm trying to get transportation straightened out. Well, let's talk about how to pay for that. You know, I I took a summertime trip up to Maine, and along the way, I paid something like thirteen dollars in tolls to Massachusetts, to New Hampshire, to Maine. Uh, Massachusetts takes in about $325 million in tolls from tolling on the Mass Pike and on the Tobin Bridge. Um, I know that we've, we've asked uh, your, your Secretary Ben Barnes at the OPM about this in the past. I, I'm wondering, should we consider a new way of tolling in the state? Because the rest of our neighbors in, in, uh, in New England and in New York, they do institute tolls. Maybe we're leaving a lot of money to help pay for this and also relieve congestion. It's been proven that if you do congestion pricing on roads, it forces people off the roads. You're able to collect something from the people who are driving, and you're able to keep more people off, uh, thus reducing the need for maintenance, et cetera. What do you think? Uh, I, I think we should have a conversation about how we pay for it, um, and I'm more than happy to lead that conversation. But this is where we need to start. Uh, and, and let me remind you, we, we, we're actually further, much further along than I thought we would be when I rolled this plan out in January because we got the legislature to devote one-half cent of the sales tax to transportation without raising the, the uh, sales tax. So that, that was a gigantic victory for the people of Connecticut. But this is what needs to happen next. The legislature needs to, make, to, to pass a constitutional lockbox. They need to do it soon. It needs to be on the ballot next November, a year from November. Um, to do that, uh, we need to have either two separate votes with, with a majority, one this year, one ne- uh, next year, uh, or we need to get 60 percent uh, 60 percent plus of, of the legislature to, to, uh, uh, to pass uh, uh, that. We need to be able to look the citizens in the face and say, listen, we need to have this broad discussion about how we're going to pay to make up for underinvestment over the last 40 years. But we're going to do it in the context that you can be assured that not one dollar uh, that is that is supposed to go to transportation is going to go to something else. When we do that, we can have this very broad discussion about about all kinds of different ways to, to pay for it. Without that, I don't think we can have that discussion in Connecticut in a meaningful way. Do, do you think that that should be a special session? I mean, to actually get this lockbox, which I know you've been talking about for quite some time, to actually get this instituted so that we can start to collect the revenue around transportation in an honest way, as you say, yeah, you want to be able to look the, the voters in, in the eyes and the citizens in the eyes and say, yeah, we're going to put this money in the right place, whether it's through tolls or anything else. Should we have a special session to do just that? Uh, you know, we, we, there are lots of ways to get it done. I, I think what we need to do have, is have a consensus that we're going to do it before we call anybody in to, uh, to, to do anything. Um, and I think that, that you know, listen, I, I, this, is, this is great to be, to be on, uh, on this station. Your listeners need to call their state representatives and state senators, Republicans and Democrats alike. Call uh, 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 the leadership of the committees and say, you owe it to us to look us in the eye and say, if we pay something for transportation, it's not going to be spent someplace else. When we get that done, we can have a meaningful discussion. There is not a consensus to get that done yet. When you have that meaningful discussion, do you believe that one of the things you may bring to the table 
as part of your leadership on this issue is the idea of some sort of passive toll collection system. I mean, I, I, you, I, you believe in this I, as a basic notion. I, I, well, listen, 27 percent of the people use our uh, interstate highway system we know are uh, foreign registered uh, vehicles. Um, so we're not getting revenue from those folks. Uh, and every other state up and down 95 from, from uh, you know, from Maine down to Florida uh, is getting some amount of toll. So we are the outlier in, in that regard. Um, I'm happy to have it on the table. It's not the only way to do it. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, what, I'm, what I have always said is let's get a lockbox and then let's have a discussion which involves the public. Let's have lots of hearings about what, what we should do. Let, let's, let's have people's voices be heard. I'm, I'm saying that. Uh, but it has to happen in the context of a, a constitutional assurance uh, that no one's going to take transportation money ever again and spend it any other way. I, I want to talk to you about a really important municipal issue, an unusual, to put it mildly, race for mayor of the city of Bridgeport. Uh, Bill Finch, uh, the current mayor of the city, lost in a primary to Joe Gannam. He is, of course, the former mayor who spent some time in prison on corruption charges. Uh, he won the primary. Bill Finch has essentially stepped aside and said, I'm not going to run in November in part because he didn't have a ballot line, but he's thrown his support behind Mary Jane Foster, uh, who is going to run an independent campaign. Are you supporting anyone specifically in the race for mayor of Bridgeport? Not at this time. Um, you know, I know the, the candidates. I know Mary Jane very well. Uh, uh, she didn't do well in the primary, uh, but she was running against you know, two other folks, uh, perhaps in a, 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 a smaller field she can do better. I, I think, you know, I'm going to watch that race. I'm going to uh, see what goes on. But at this point, uh, it's obvious I've not uh, endorsed any, uh, any, any candidate. Are you comfortable with the notion of Joe Gannam running the city of Bridgeport, such a large and important and in many ways troubled city, a city that's going to need a lot of state help, uh, a city that's going to have a lot of money from various sources flowing through it. Are you comfortable with the notion of Mayor Joe Gannam in Bridgeport? Well, as, as you're aware, I have not endorsed his candidacy, uh, nor did I, did I in the primary. Um, and uh, it is an unusual circumstances uh, that someone who has gone to jail uh, because, in essence, they stole money from the public, uh, won a primary. Uh, but that, that's apparently what people in Bridgeport decided they, they want to do. Um, someone who has not had uh, his license to practice law uh, been restored uh, is going to uh, – so he can't, he can't have that profession, but the profession he can have is, is one at the ballot box. It's an unusual set of circumstances. I have not made a, an endorsement uh, uh, as of yet. I'm watching the race, and we'll see what happens. Well, let's go to Amy, who's calling from Vernon. Hello, Amy. Go ahead. You're on with the governor. Good morning, and good morning, Governor. Thank you for taking this call. Sure. I'm calling you about the um, proposed – the impacts on the Department of Developmental Services of your rescission. Yes. Um, the proposed biennial budget had zeroed out the funding for postgraduate high school day programs. Yes. Some of that funding was restored. Now we're facing this $7.57 million in rescissions, and which I understand includes, once again, cuts to the funding for the postgrad program. And I wanted to ask you what your rationale was for continuing to decrease funding from DDS. And what are the prospects for funding for the postgrad high school program? Well, I'm not um, sure that we've my actually. My daughter, who has intellectual disabilities and severe autism, she needs a chance to grow. Sure. And 
so so let me say this that that actually I'm not uh, we'll run the numbers I'm not sure that we've actually reduced uh, the amount of, of money in in the department but I'll I'll uh, I'll get back to John on on a budget uh, uh, comparison year to year um, uh, under the uh, laws that have been passed with respect to the ability of the executive branch to manage the state's uh, uh, resources uh, we're not given a lot of leeway um, we can only make cuts to certain items uh, certain line items and not uh, and not the vast majority of others. Um, and so when we're confronted with a situation where we know we're going to have uh, less income in that, uh, in that grouping of income, which I described at about $3.7 billion, we know we're going to have some amount of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars less come in there. I'm trying to manage the resources. Having, having said that, we're working with commissioners, and I believe that we will uh, provide uh, in that department uh, the level of services uh, necessary. I, I I think the commissioner um, is reinventing that department. Um, I, I think she's pu pushing great change. I think you should have her in again and get an update on, on that. Uh, I think what we're going to see in that department is dollars actually go further uh, because uh, she's pushing change as well as the recovery of, of dollars that for too many years uh, we didn't receive uh, the reimbursement that perhaps we should have for, uh, from the federal government for. Uh, you Speaking of another uh, important State Department, uh, we haven't spoken to you since uh, a few reports and a series of videos came out from the state's juvenile detention facilities, uh, reports about restraints and seclusions, some fairly uh, disturbing videos we ran on our uh, website, WNPR.org, and you saw in various newspapers. I guess, first of all, Governor, I'd just like you to react, if you would, to what you've seen uh, having to do with the Department of Children and Families and uh, these juvenile detention facilities for, for young people in just the last few months. Well, let, let's remember that the taping of those, uh, in many instances, is as a result of a policy that my administration uh, put in place so that we can actually track that, that that kind of behavior. Uh, let's also point out that the number of uh, children at that uh, institution have, has been lowered dramatically, and we have plans to, to lower it even even further. Let's remember that I would not have built that that particular facility, uh, and and in fact uh, that was in, tied up with a a, a, a piece of. Uh, felonious uh, activity by one of our, our prior governors as well. Speaking of people who've gone to jail, yeah, anyway, please right. continue. So, so, uh, so we're doing the best we can. But, but let me also point this out, that the hardest job in America is not being governor and it's not being mayor or superintendent of schools or police chief. It's being the person who's the head of DCF because you know that, that there's just so much conflict. There's so much going on. There are so many uh, young people who are at risk that no matter what you do, there are going to be problems. Well, what I think we we need to do is continue to go down the road that we are, and that is to have as many of our young people remain in state and not in institutions as possible. Uh, and that's where we've made tremendous success. And I think to some extent, um, uh, some of the story uh, uh, of uh, the failures or the lack of change in some areas overwhelms how much this department has already changed and how much good work is, uh, is going on. I would not have built that facility. It should have the lowest number of people possible. Have Having said all of that, there are some number of people of any age who are truly dangerous and danger to themselves and danger to others. And finding the most compassionate way to deal with those folks and getting them as much help as possible and keeping both the caregiver and the care receiver safe, 
uh, is always a hard question. We just have 30 seconds left. I'll ask you to give me an update on where we are with talks with GE about keeping their headquarters here in the state. Well, let me just say one thing. I, I think earlier today I used the word um, uh, aid to retarded. We don't use that. That's an old agency name. So I want to uh, it's, it's disability. So I want to say that. Listen, you know, GE is going to decide where it wants to be. The number one uh, choice, uh, the deciding factor in where a company remains uh, is where does the chief executive want to live or work? Um, and w- we have said that we can meet any needs uh, and match uh, any offer uh, uh, and tax at, at, at similar rates uh, 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 corporately uh, as any other state. But I can't change where somebody wants to live or work. And so we'll see how it plays itself out. Governor Malloy, always good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Where We Live. Thank you. We're going to go now to some colleagues to uh, find out a little bit more about how you can become a member of WNPR and support programs just like Where We Live. Thanks to our producers and thanks to you for listening.